I want to welcome all those who are watching online, and we're thankful that you are joining us in our midst and we get to worship with you today. I think in light of all that we are holding in the midst of this week, it feels like maybe one of the few, if not only, thing we share in common in some ways right now is a concern for our future. And it's no matter who we voted for, I think all of us care about the world we're stepping into and the road that lies ahead. But when I think about our future, I think about our kids. Sure, it's what I get paid to do here, but I think about the fact that we are preparing them for a world that we don't yet know. And I think about despite whoever holds whatever office in whatever season of whatever era, we have a call to raise and love and nurture them. It's, and we do this in the context of our faith that was given to us so that they can be the people we're, that they're called to be and be ready for the road ahead. I think about the fact that ours is a faith that has withstood presidents, judges, kings, despots, dictators, you name it. Ours is a faith that stands fast. And it does so in times of joy, and it does it in times of sorrow. It's the thing we can cling to in the midst of uncertainty, and a thing that we can hold to and stand on to make sense of whatever the world's concerns are of the day. And I think about the fact and the reality that it's our call to raise and nurture our kids to be able to do the same. And so that's what I want to talk about today, our kids. The future that they have and our responsibility that we have to raise and to nurture them in the faith of Jesus Christ, to prepare them for whatever the future may hold. And that's why I picked our text for today. I loved in how in Paul's letters to Timothy, he opens up with this greeting to him and highlights the, the, the faith that lived in his grandmother. As he looks backward toward people who were instrumental in, Paul's li- or in Timothy's life, he highlights that. And I like just the, the way in which that was seen as a gift that was deposited in him to prepare him for the life that he would have. And the imagery here he uses, it matches so well with the kind of life I hope for and want for our young people. One where they have the substantive faith that lives in them too. And so as we begin to think about the future, I want to take a moment to consider the past. At least my past and how I got here. I am who I am because of my grandmother Dot. And grandma, if you're watching right now, I am sorry. I didn't ask your permission because you would have said no. Um... My grandma doesn't like it when I say that about her because she doesn't want the attention. But I say it because I know Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior because of the faith that she has. Sure, my grandma, she is not some famous pastor or she wasn't some pioneer in the mission field. In fact, for most of her life, she was a homemaker who raised my mother and loved her and cared for her. And then when my family moved to Arizona, she and my grandfather moved out to Arizona too to help my mom raise my brother and I. She raised me in the context of faith and surrounded me with Jesus. I actually thought that Jesus was one of her, like, friends that came over and hung out because of how she talked about him, and I just figured he came by when he wasn't there. Now, to be fair, I grew up in Arizona, and there are a lot of Jesuses around there, so (laughs) it wasn't that (laughs) far-fetched. But she lived in a way that faith was real to me. It was substantive. It, it, It was palpable. And I really did think he would walk through the door any minute. And she took me to church, and she surrounded me with people who loved Jesus and would love me. In fact, my grandmother and grandfather moved from their church to the church that I grew up at because I'd started attending their youth group. 
and she decided she wanted to be a part of a church that was going to participate in caring for me. And so she would drive across town to pick me up whenever I needed a ride from church, help me go on whatever trip I needed to go on or whatever, you know, like let me do chores to work, work it off. She did anything she could to support my faith development. And she did all that and attended that church despite the fact that she could not stand the senior pastor in his preaching. <laughs> yeah. He, he talked with his hands a lot, which I think is really ironic because it's all I do. Um, <laughs> but she wanted me to be in a church where I would be loved, where I would be nurtured. And she wanted to be a part of that in my life and made it a priority. And so I have the faith that I have because of the faith that she does. It was like one of the many traditions and wisdoms that we pass from generation to generation. And for her, among no, for me knowing how to do things like to sew a button, how to patch a pair of pants, cook myself a decent meal, she wanted me to know and love Jesus. And so she made it a, a priority for her. I am who I am because of who she is and who she felt that I had it in me to be because she saw who God created me to be and worked towards that vision. She is a faithful disciple who did what we are all called to do, raise and nurture those who come after us with the faith of Jesus Christ by giving them the gift of faith that was given to us. And the thing is, is that when I think about her life, I, it's just pretty crazy to me. She grew up, you know, she was born in the post-World War I era. She lived through World War II, met and married my grandfather, had my mother, raised my mom through the Cold War, through the Civil Rights Movement, through all the changes and challenges that, that faced her in her day. And she persisted through all of those things by being a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, raising my mother to be the same. And so my mom raised me and my brother with the same values. And she took the gift that my grandmother had given her and then gave it to us so that we could know and love Jesus as well. And so here I am. Not as any perfect example by any means, but as a result of what happens when people take the gospel seriously and they pass it from generation to generation. And alongside what our scripture says today, one of the things I like thinking about is how we are called to relate to one another as people of the new covenant. See, the last genealogy in Scripture, and by genealogy I mean those long lists of names where it says so-and-so begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so. They're like the large chunks of Scripture that, if you're like me, sometimes I jump over because there's just a lot of begatting and I don't really want to follow the whole line sometimes. But they're important. And we see them throughout the whole of the Old Testament because they, it was important in, as they were tracing the fulfillment of the Messiah— as they trace the line back to Abraham. And so they rehearsed this, that so-and-so came from so-and-so came from so-and-so, because that's also what defined being a part of the community of faith. Being a member of the tribe of Israel, connecting your line back to that. It was crucial to being a part of the chosen people. And the last one we have is at the beginning of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when they trace the family tree of Jesus Christ. And what I think is interesting is that after the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus and we're given the new covenant, the early church begins to think about family and who we, are to, and who we are to one another very differently. See, what we see is Paul says in his letter to the church in Ephesus that Jesus has made us one body and that irrespective of the family we came from or social class or gender or race, through Jesus, we are family. And as this reality became clear to believers, they realized all that was needed to be a part of that family was professing a faith in Jesus Christ. 
What that meant was your blood, the color of your skin, where you came from, what gender you were, no matter, no, no, no longer mattered. It wasn't what defined you as being a part of the family of faith. Instead, it was who you believed in. And this was a shocking notion then, as much as it is now in some ways. Because as the early church was forming in the first century, it was the only place, and that's not hyperbole, it was the only place where women, minorities, slaves, the poor, outcast, they were welcomed and they were loved without regard for any of those distinctions. And this was happening in the midst of a highly polarized society. Sound familiar? The Church of Jesus Christ stands alone as the only place in the world where the things that divide us are the things that are overcome by the power of the gospel. And if it isn't, it should be. And this is good news. Because what it means is that all of us, all of us are adopted into the family of faith because of who we believe in and the faith we have. A family that in many ways is the visible expression of God's love for us. A family that will care for us, nurture us, support us, guide us, and be the face of God to us in so many moments. But this family, like all families, also plays a part in the raising and nurturing of its children. It's one of the primary functions of a family in many ways. And this is where I get really excited because what that means is despite the blood relations that we have in this community that are meaningful and wonderful, the family that we are in Jesus Christ is bigger than those. It means your kids are my kids, and my kids are your kids. And that's not some nice idea or so warm fuzzy for you to tuck away and think about and ponder in your heart. It's the reality that Jesus Christ gave us when he gave us salvation. We get him and we get each other and we are made one by him. And in that, we get to be a part of sharing the faith with the next generation. That means that each of us get to play a role like Lois or Eunice or Paul in the life of someone like Timothy. We get to be faithful guides and encouragers and mentors and teachers and examples of the faith to pass that on to our kids. And it's more than just an opportunity. I'll tell you, it is an opportunity, though, but it's one of the most blessed opportunities I've had in my entire life. But it's also a responsibility that we have as followers of Jesus Christ. It's a responsibility we share with one another. It's something that we all need to take seriously and invest in our kids to help them develop a living and sustaining faith that will guide them for the future. Now, as I said earlier, my grandmother was a huge part of my faith development and invested in me in ways that I are too, are too many to count. But all, so did my church that I grew up at, which was St. Andrew's Presbyterian in Tucson, Arizona. And it was a church where I was met by people who loved me and cared for me and were just wonderful in many ways. And one of them was a guy named Matt. Matt was a freshman in high school who was a part of my um, youth group student leadership program. And so he was serving as a student leader in our middle school ministry. And so when I was in sixth grade, Matt and another adult leader were my small group leaders for my first small group. And what began in that moment was a relationship that is still pivotal for me today. I introduce Matt as my big brother when people meet him. When I go home to Tucson and I go over to his house, I walk through the door and his kids, Jane and Ethan, they run up to me and call me Uncle Colin. Because that's who we are to one another. See, what 
he was an older guy, and though only a few years older, he was still an older guy who cared about me, who invested in me, who took the opportunity to know me, to love me. He hung out with me. He went to my, you know, choir concerts. He was someone that was there for me. And as a result, I let him in. And what happened is amazing. Because I got a guy who was for me no matter what. Sure, he kicked my my butt as many times as he didn't. But he was always there. And what I found in Matt was something that I thank God for daily. I would not be here if it were not for my grandmother and if it weren't for Matt. My grandmother was family from birth. And she began that nurture and care for me then. But God knew I needed more. And so he gave me Matt. He gave me another brother that I needed. A brother who in many ways stepped in in ways that others couldn't, where my own family might not have been able to. And this is what I think is amazing and beautiful, is that God's view for us and, and as our community, as his children, is that we would be brothers and sisters to one another. Again, not a nice idea, a reality made, made to us by the gift of salvation to love one another, to care for one another, encouraging one another in the faith, and to pursue the call that Christ has for each of us. And we do that for one another as peers. I know countless stories of people in this congregation who have loved and served and honored one another through times of joy, through times of sorrow, and everything in between. But like all families, we're called to particularly care for the younger generation, the generations that will come after us, to do that for them as well. And younger generations have always depended on those who have gone before them to prepare them for the road ahead. And this is especially important when it comes to developing, sustaining faith throughout the whole of their lives. Young people depend on us to invest in them and share with them the gift that was given to us. I would add, too, that every time we baptize a kid in here, we also vow to do just that. And again, those aren't just nice ideas. They're promises we've made. And we would do well to make good on them. But as I say that, investing in kids and passing on the faith is easier said than done. And so there's a couple things I think we should acknowledge. Faith isn't a pill or a shot that I can administer. I can't inoculate your kids from the devil and say, we're good to go. It's not how it works. If it were, my job would be so much easier. Instead, what we find is faith is something that is tended to, it is cared for, it is nurtured, and it's done over time. To sustain faith, or develop a sustaining faith in young people, takes getting to know them, takes wanting to to love them, to encourage them, to be with them and for them in the midst of all that they face. It means we have to work to understand them. But what we find, though, as adults is that we can make poor assumptions about young people, their lives, their struggles, and as a result, we miss them. And I I stand in that gap a lot because part of my job as I work with parents is to speak kid for parents and to go, here's what I think your kid's trying to say and what they don't have it in them to say to you right now, but this is what they're trying to do. And in in that space, what I find is a lot of kids feel missed. They feel abandoned. And I think what they think is that somehow we have these expectations of them to perform and to excel and achieve without regard for their personal and their individual identities. 
And as a result, in the midst of that, what I find is a lot of kids, like a lot of generations before them, have looked at older generations and said, I don't care about that. You don't care about me. Why should I care about what you want from me? And sure, they will play along and participate in our games as long as we make a compelling reason for them to do so. And one of the ways we have done that is our educational system, the way we prepare kids for adulthood. Our society has constructed a system in which a student's understanding of, let's take algebraic equations or functions, and we've directly connected their understanding of that and ability to show and demonstrate performance and proficiency to the grade they're going to get in the class, which is then linked to their overall GPA, which is then linked to the college they're going to be able to go to, which is then linked to the job opportunities they're going to have, which is then linked to their earning potential, which is then linked to whether or not they're going to have a happy and healthy and wonderful life. Welcome to the life of a seventh grader as they're trying to prep for a math quiz. It's ridiculous in some ways. But the thing is, is we do this to them. This is the world we've said you need to participate in. And we also do it with their sports, with their hobbies, and with the, with the service activities we want them to participate in. It's all this carefully calculated game that we're playing to somehow get them where we think they should be. And we reinforce these systems not because I don't believe any of you are evil people who are like, let's screw with kids. Like, it's not how we got here. <laughs> no one was like, you want to know what we should do today? Make kids' lives harder. That sounds like a good, honest day's work. No. We got here because we love them and we want good things for them. Why wouldn't you want your kids to be able to financially support themselves? Why wouldn't you want them to have a career where they can be happy? Why wouldn't you want them to be able to go to whatever college they want, right? These aren't bad things in and of themselves. But again, like all things, when we make them an end in and of themselves, we tempt towards idolatry and not towards honoring them. We have to find a different way through this. My question to you is this, though. We have a lot of people in this room who I would look at and say are pretty highly successful, are people who have climbed that you know, staircase and mastered the steps and done well at doing it, people that we would look at and say are examples of achieving in that system. My question to you is this. Did it work? Are you happy? Did it give you everything you needed? If any part of this rings hollow to you, that's a sign that we have a lot more work to do and better thinking is needed to love and support and nurture our kids and that our current solutions are not solutions at all and we need to find different ways and they're the ones who are caught in the gap until we do. We have to consider them and think about them and they deserve our time and our energy so we can raise them better. And what's more, and people will disagree with me on this, and you're welcome to, but I believe it's harder to be a kid today. On the surface, I think the, that the world of young people, it appears um, steady and stable and reliable. And I think a lot of parents look at that and they're like, look at how much I give you. How is your life not easy? Right? Like, it's not that they're somehow in this place because you don't care, but in the midst of it, underneath the surface of those what seem like calm waters is a turmoil that is difficult and painful and lonely, and I dare say even harmful to them. The lives of young people and the challenges that they face are hard to both describe and understand. But my brief summary is this. The world gets more and more technologically advanced the more we progress as a society, and so it's required to be an adult. That list gets longer and longer and longer. And so we pack more in to a period of adolescence than we used to before. 
and expect more of them to perform and exceed, exceed and excel. And in the midst of it, they feel lost because we care about how they perform, not who they are. When's the last time you asked a kid what something fun you did last week? Generally, we say, how's school? How are your grades? What they hear in that is, have you performed the way I needed you to in order for you to be who I want you to be? I get passionate about this because I love our kids and I watch them in this gap a lot. And for the vast majority of adults, I think it's hard to understand because most of us want to take the easy route and we want to say things are not that much harder than when I was a kid. The world's not that much more difficult. And others will say it doesn't really even matter if it is. What matters is that they live up to the values of respect and commitment and hard work. Buck up. Figure it out. Here's what I guess what I'll say to you is after all, after many years, almost 15 years in youth ministry, there is a gnawing, nagging reality in me that is growing, that even though we want to be committed and are engaging in these activities because we love our kids, we are not the light to them that we think we are, and we're missing them in the midst of it. And I think there are many days where we have no idea or what it is that we're dealing with. And even those people who would argue with me on all of that, I would venture to say wouldn't push me on the fact that young people need us to invest in them as they grow that they need people to support them in the midst of that. And the fact is that young people need adults to become adults. And when we aren't present, when we don't step into those places, when we don't try and understand them, they're going to go and find answers themselves. They're industrious kids. We've raised them to be. So they're going to engage the tools that we've given them to go find answers that we may not like. And if you're in that spot, that's a sign that it's your time to invest because you don't get to critique what you don't participate in. And so if you look at the next generation and you have concerns, that is your catalytic moment to step into their lives and be a voice in their life, to love them and support them and nurture them. It's a lot, and it's hard. And when I think about all that, I'm looking for something hopeful. And one thing I th think is hopeful in the midst of all this is a guy named John Mabbitt. Some of you may know John. He's fulfilled a lot of roles for here. I don't know if he's up there pushing the space bar right now. He's probably ducking if he is. Um, John grew up here at Belprez. John was one of the kids of this church that was raised and nurtured and loved. And as John became an adult, he decided that he was going to turn around and invest in people who would come after him. And so in 2002, John decided to be a youth group leader. And he started with a group of seventh grade boys and walked with them all the way until they graduated high school. And what's crazy to a lot of people is that the, he turned around and did that again. John is working on his fifth group of guys. He has been a youth leader for 14 years, which is ridiculous. It's amazing. He's, you should see him with our kids. It's just awesome. And I asked one of his former students, Colin Bennett, about him, and here's what Colin shared with me. He said that John used to borrow the church van every week to drive from Redmond to Mill Creek back to Bellevue to get um, his uh, small group when they were all still in middle school and commuting was tricky getting here. He would do this circuit every week to get them all here and then do it to get them home. And Colin told me that when he was 15, one time they were waiting in the Jackson High School parking lot and someone else was late. And so John just figured, well, let's seize the opportunity. And he taught Colin how to drive. Which I know our facilities folks cringe at with the church van, but here's the thing. John's also on session right now as our elder who works with facilities, and so he's never been more untouchable. <laughs> <laughs> a 
John remarked, or Colin remarked to me that John has been one of the most consistent people in my life since seventh grade, and he still is. For the last 13 years, he has remained a constant presence who has gone above and beyond for me. Colin also commented that John did the same thing for his younger brothers, Landon and Nathan, and that he's a part of their family because of the role he's played in their lives. Chris and Steve Bennett feel so, because John has invested so much in their family's life and he's been so present to them, Chris and Steve feel pretty comfortable just blaming all of their kids' shortcomings on John. (laughs) They're kidding. And what they said after that very quickly was that John's a member of the Bennett family because John took the time to love their kids without reservation and shaped who they are. And they're deeply thankful for the ways in which John raised, helped them raise their boys. Now, again, what John has done is incredible. It's nothing short of amazing. And while I think there are a few people who could or would do what John has done, 14 years is a pretty long tour in youth ministry, what John for us is an example of how we're called to live. He's an example of taking young people in their lives seriously to invest in them and love them and help them develop a nurturing faith that they want and they desperately need. Now, as I'm working through all this and thinking about it, I also think one dynamic that we have to name in the midst of this is that it's easy for older generations to look at younger generations and hear this call to invest in them and say, okay, yeah, I get that, but what about me? It's not like when we became adults, all of a sudden life got easy. We did all figure it out, right? We need, we still need help. We still need to be supported. We still need to be loved. And I get that. And we get to do that for each other as peers. But what I will also tell you after almost 15 years in youth ministry is this. I have received more back from the kids and young people that I have invested in than I ever thought possible. They've served me in ways that I could not have imagined. And one of the most poignant seasons of my life as I was stepping into a season of of separation and ultimately divorce was my old youth group kids stepping into my life and caring for me. When Dudley said, hey, you need to go away for a while and get your head screwed on straight and figure out what's going to happen, I flew to North Carolina to be with one of them for a week. And then when I had to do my first Thanksgiving after the separation, I was with one of them. And then my first Christmas, I was with another one of them. These kids who are my kids all of a sudden were the people who were receiving me as a mess and loving me in ways that I didn't even know was possible. They were some of the first people to step in and love me without hesitation, to show me a love I didn't ever expect to receive. And they were a gift to me, and what they did for me is something that I will never forget. Just because you are younger doesn't decrease the power or potency of your love. And you don't need to have someone older in your life to love you and to remind you of how loved you are. In some things, age matters, and in this, it doesn't matter at all. Now, the other thing I want to add um, before I close is that if you're listening today and you happen to be a young person, let's set that watermark at if you're 25 or under, you have a role to play in this dynamic as well. Here's the reality. Here's the truth. Faith is not a spectator sport. It's something that you participate in. And if I'm going to put it to everyone today to invest in you, I'm going to put it to you as much to invest back. Your job is to receive the gift that is being given to you. This is not a one-way street. Relationships, healthy ones at least, are always a two-way street. And what that means is you have a call to be a part of this family as well. 
You have a call to participate, to engage. Being a disciple means leaning in. It means seeking out the wisdom that you need to be who it is God created you to be. You don't get to sit back and wait for someone to come and care. You've got to start pulling your share of the load. Because here's the reality. If some older person walked up to you and said, hey there, I'd like to be your mentor, you'd be like, this is weird. You have to lean into and seek that out. Find someone that you think you, you, you respect and ask them. Say, can I get coffee with you? Can I get to know you? This cuts both ways. You know, Dudley said earlier that he felt there were three things that we needed to do in light of everything we're facing today. Trust, listen, and do. And those tasks apply to this subject as well. In response to, to the, the call that we have to invest in younger generations, I would like to encourage you to trust that this call is one that comes from God. And it's a responsibility that we all have a part to share in. To listen to the voice of God and how he is calling you to invest in younger generations. Realizing that the other part of the task of listening is to hear the voices of young people and take them seriously. They want to engage you. They just need to know you care and you care about them. Lastly, do engage them. Maybe that's being a youth group leader or a Sunday school teacher. We will gladly take you. But maybe it's serving as a mentor at Eastside Academy or a tutor at KidReach. Maybe it's being a prayer partner to a kid. Maybe it's as you walk out today, walking out in that patio area where a ton of high middle school and high school students are going to be after this service, and walking up to one of them and saying, hi, my name is, I'd like to, what's your name? And remembering it next week as you look for them and say hi to them again. Scott also mentioned that he's been pushing all of us to think about where are the places that we can bring healing, school, home, work, our neighborhoods. And one of the ways I think you can bring healing to this world is to invest in younger generations. And as one who speaks on their behalf, they need you desperately. And my hope is that you will heed the call and responsibility in your life and step into theirs and receive a joy that is boundless. Pray with me. Holy God, thank you for being a God who works generation to generation who loves us and cares for us and calls us to be a part of how faith is transmitted and shared. We're thankful for the ways in which you love us, and we're thankful for our kids. It's in your name we pray. Amen.